This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses on one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. On the northern coast of Africa lies the blood-soaked sands of the nation of Libya, a nation which was once home to the self-proclaimed African King of Kings, a nation with the ninth largest oil reserves in the world, the gate between Africa and Europe. And now, the site of yet another bloody civil war. And as usual, when resources are at stake, the international community swoops in to back their preferred client. With this war escalating from being a Libyan affair, to becoming an overcrowded chessboard with Russia, France, Italy, Egypt, Qatar, Turkey, Greece, and many more all playing for different outcomes in this already ravaged nation. When the cork that was the dictator Gaddafi was removed from the bottle, it opened up the stage for another conflict that has already claimed the lives of 10,000 people. And with one side now positioned with tanks, drones, artillery and men at the very gates of his enemy's capital city, we are now entering the new, far bloodier stage of the Libyan Civil War. Part 1. Removing the Cork Personally, what strikes me every time I go is the beauty of the place, uh, the majestic scene uh, with the sea when I go to Tripoli, and um, you know the, the version that I saw in um, over the last couple of years was much different from uh, the way it existed in 2015 and 2016. Jalel Hatchery is one of the world's foremost experts on Libya and a research fellow for the Klingendel Institute, dedicated to covering Libyan security politics and justice. He joins us today. So the downtown area in Tripoli, for instance, uh, looks still still looks normal. Uh, as you go further, you realize, the, of course, that you're approaching the, the front line and um, and you and you, you know, understand that uh, effectively the, the city is, uh, is surrounded and some periods are calmer than other periods. And you really you wonder how would you uh, get out if uh, the airport were to be shuttered. Uh, would you be able to uh, drive to Tunisia, for instance? How many checkpoints do you have in there, and so on and so forth. So, it's still it's still a scene that uh, belies the uh, the fact that uh, at the end of the day, it's a it's a war zone and uh, it's a very very dangerous uh, war, and sometimes um, civilians are, are hit. So to lay down some basics, why is Libya far richer than most of its neighbours in places like Chad or Algeria? It's a combination of two um, reasons. One human, which is demography. Demography happens to be very, very, very small. It's uh, barely 6.5 million um, compared to, um, to, let's say, uh, you know, 14 or more in Tunisia, or 42 in Algeria, 37 in uh, 35 in Morocco, and 100 million in Egypt. So it's like an aberration. Um, the the population is very very small, and uh, geo geologically, I was going to say, uh, the, that territory happens to be very wealthy. Uh, not just in terms of uh, natural gas and uh, crude oil, which happens to be one of the best quality crude oils uh, on earth. But you also have a lot of untapped reserves when it comes to uh, iron ore, diamonds, gold, and, uh, and other things. Uh, it's also rich in uh, fresh water under the ground. 
Um, so uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a curse. Uh, I think anybody, uh, any Libyan who's uh, who has a reasonable understanding of his own uh, or their own um, country will tell you that this wealth for such a small population is probably the primary reason uh, the country is in so much trouble today. So we will go far more into this later on in the episode, but to lay it out for now, there are many sides fighting in this war, but the two majors are the GNA, who are the UN-recognized government, who have support from Turkey and a few others. Uh, these guys are based in the capital Tripoli, which is in the west of Libya. On the other side, we have the forces loyal to General Haftar, who is based in the east of the country. Uh, he has backing from nations like the UAE, Russia, and Egypt, and has currently advanced most of the way across the country and has arrived at the outer suburbs of Tripoli as of time of recording. Uh, can you expand a bit on the geography of the nation and why Haftar owning most of the territory could be slightly misleading to someone reading a map? A lot of the people who are proponents of... Uh Marshal Haftar's uh, camp, uh, they love to circulate on social media this map that says that um, uh, the GNA uh, covers only 10% of the territory, which is, you can, which is arguably true. But the problem is that they never mention, they never specify the fact that that 10% of the territory happens to contain more than 40% or almost 45% of the uh, nation, uh, na national population. So I'm basically highlighting the asymmetry between the East and the West to say it simply, you have more than two thirds in the Western half of the country and less than one third approximately uh, living in the East. And uh, knowing that there's more oil in the East, you start imagining one of the reasons, not the only one, one of the reasons that could continue fueling the conflict uh, for a long time, and that has definitely been one issue. So the, um, the distribution of the population is very uneven, and that, that is absolutely crucial if you want to understand the country. So to really understand Libya, we have to talk about Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, who is the dictator of Libya for 42 years between 1969 and 2011. Uh, can you give us a quick summary on the man who once called himself the African King of Kings? Well, his, um, I, you know, I always like to remember that as a teenager, he used to listen to this invention, the transistor, uh, the radio speech, uh, the, the speeches of uh, Nasser were not just affecting the population of Egypt, but it's, uh, it was a, a revolutionary invention, radio being broadcast beyond the borders of Egypt, the most influential, largest um, Arab country. Uh, so it's a little bit like the effect of social media today or the effect of the internet in the 90s. It was really a, a game changer. So here we are with a, uh, the son of a, of a relatively poor um, person in the heart of um, Libya. So he's not from the east, he's not really from the west. He's someone who was born basically in the middle of the coast and spent a good portion of his uh, teenage years in the south. That young Muammar Gaddafi actually... Uh, drank the Kool-Aid, if you will. I'm not saying that in a pejorative or derogatory way, but he actually grew up on the ideology of um, Egyptian nationalism, which was a socialistic, um, very Arab, you know, pan-Arabic uh, kind of movement that was meant to be against imperialism in general. And, um, and, and effectively, that ideology, ideology was killed was, um, you know, buried 
during the Six Day War in 1967. So for me, Gaddafi is a is like a dead cat's bounce. He was a Nasserite after uh, Nasser's own ideology was uh, basically destroyed uh, in 67 because the revolution, the free officers of Libya. I'm not talking about the free officers of, um, of Nasser, but of course they used the same name because they were inspired by a similar ideology. They revolted against the king in 69. At the time, Nasser was still technically alive, but his ideology was destroyed. So Gaddafi is basically the Libyan version of that, uh, knowing that he actually understood some of the mistakes that Nasser had made. Uh, for example, Nasser never used religion, uh, but Gaddafi did use, uh, you know, uh, great knowledge of Salafism, for instance, um, and and he understood that uh, the Muslim brother uh, were uh, an enemy, but he also that doesn't mean that you should not use religion. You should, in fact, use religion. That's what he started doing in '73. So here in 1969, you have a long period where Gaddafi. Uh, uses all kinds of techniques to uh, stay in power. A lot of his decisions were about power, not 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 so much about improving the condition of his own nation. Um, and he destroyed many institutions over the years uh, for that uh, purpose. And uh, one reason uh, Libya has so many problems today is because there was this uh, very deliberate. Uh, method, if you will, that consisted in uh, weakening the institutions because strong institutions meant that the country could operate without you. So I wouldn't say that he built a weak state. It was a very bizarre state, but I wouldn't say that it was weak. Uh, what made it peculiar is that it was meant to collapse the minute the human being called Muammar Gaddafi uh, was going to run into some kind of difficulty. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, for example, we all know that uh, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt always wanted to install his son. He failed uh, in the 2000s and, and he tried until 2011, but he was in favor of installing his son. And Hafez al-Assad uh, was very deeply interested in installing his sons or one of his sons, and he did. But Gaddafi was so paranoid that uh, he was not even sincere in how he was preparing uh, his sons for his succession. So to give you an idea of how uh, drastic he was, even um, the relationship that linked him as a father to his sons was for him a form of an institution that he had to subvert and had to weaken. So he did that with everything, tribal structures, education system, uh, you name it, uh, private enterprise. And um, basically the whole thing, the whole house of cards uh, collapsed in uh, 2011. And a lot of what the Libya of today has been going through is not just the consequences of that, but it's in great part the consequences of those uh, four decades. So the event in 2011 you're referring to was the Arab Spring, which began the first Libyan civil war, uh, ending in the overthrowing and killing of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, when the first civil war was picking up steam, the US and European partners supported the rebels with an extensive air campaign, uh, which paved the way for the rebels to achieve a relatively quick victory. Uh, do you think the US intervention in the war was a good idea? Well, for me, that's not really a debate because, uh, you know, people say, you know, should Libya have been treated like Syria? Should 
Syria have been treated like Libya. I think we should be grateful that we have, like as historians, we have two cases. You know, in Syria, the U.S. was effectively skeptical about any kind of intervention. Obama didn't want to intervene in Syria. He could have. There was no technical obstacle. He just didn't want to do it. And um, what, I'm, I was, what I was trying to say earlier is that in Syria, the West effectively uh, chose not to intervene in an overt official manner, and it was uh, a disaster. So what I'm saying is that we, we are basically witnessing a um, growing international disorder that causes all kinds of forces that are not simply the classical manifestation of state power, like an overt visible intervention with the UN mandate. Um, that was attempted in Libya and it didn't work out. Um, but, you know, in Syria, you have basically the opposite and you also had a horrible, horrible conflict. Uh, so here, what people should be wondering about is the fact that you know, when people, for example, in, in the case of Libya in 2011, what you saw in the headlines was NATO, um, which means basically Britain, Denmark, you know, um, Italy, Turkey, uh, obviously the US. But, but I, I, you know, this is misleading because there were other states intervening, uh, not from the air. They were intervening on the ground, distribute, distributing... Um, you know, tens of thousands of tons of, of weaponry. I'm talking about Qatar. And it's because of the NATO banner, if you will, that absorbed all the attention of the entire universe that Qatar was able to do that. And, and Qatar did it not because it was the puppet of Washington or the puppet of London, of, of Paris. Uh, Qatar did it because uh, Qatar understood that uh, the West was never going to be able to send, you know, two hundred thousand soldiers on, uh, you know, on the uh, on the ground like, like it did in uh, in Iraq in two thousand three. Why would Qatar be so invested in the Libyan civil war? You basically have an entire area of the world, which is what I call the Arab-Sunni universe, you know, going from Marrakesh all the way to uh, Afghanistan, if you will, the, the Middle East, you know, I'm talking about the Sunni area here. Forget about Iran, forget about uh, Hezbollah, forget about Yemen or the, the Houthis or just the Sunni uh, area. This is an area that matters tremendously, but we know something, you know, if you're sitting in Abu Dhabi or sitting in Doha or sitting anywhere, you know one thing is that what happened, what the U.S. did in Iraq 2003 will never happen again. You know, uh, you'll never have a conventional, super costly um, decision to go in and change the political system of a, of a, of a Sunni majority uh, country which was the case with Iraq. So because Iraq was a catastrophe, then you have this certainty. If you're Mohammed bin Zayed, for instance, I'm talking about the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, you know that the West is never going to repeat that mistake. Not because they're, they, they, they know better now, it's because they don't want to lose the same amount of money, they don't want to have their soldiers killed, and they're lazy. Uh, which means that you have basically uh, that area, the, the series of countries with a Sunni majority Arab population that is up to grabs from an ideological perspective.
And within that context of uncertainty and, and growing disorder, you have this beautiful country. What I mean by beautiful, I mean it literally in terms of location, in terms of wealth, in terms of proximity to Europe, and in terms of uh, smallness of the, demo of, of the population. What does it mean? It means that any ideology can succeed if you leave it alone. You know, the Muslim brothers, you can dislike them, like them, you can hate them, you can admire them, it doesn't matter. When you have such an easy country in terms of having all that wealth and all that luck in terms of location, as I said, you know, all those structural features that make uh, Libya unique, it means that if you let the Muslim brothers, you know, uh, dominate uh, Tripoli one way or another, then they ha there's this risk of them managing to run and govern the country in some way that turns it into a showcase for the rest of the region. So uh, because the Muslim Brotherhood could succeed in Tripoli, then it could give ideas to people in Tunisia, in Algeria, in Morocco, in Somalia, in Sudan, in Egypt, and the next thing you know, you'll have a contagion. So if you really hate the Muslim Brotherhood, or if you really like what they mean, regardless of which opinion you have, you cannot afford to uh, accept a compromise in, uh, in Libya, because Libya has this showcase value, if you will. So you're going to be tempted, whether you're Qatar or um, you know, the Emirates or, or Saudi Arabia or Egypt, you have this risk of success for any kind of ideology. So what you want is maximal victory. You really want to control exactly which ideologies are allowed to survive in Tripoli so that finally you send the right message across the entire uh, swath of the world, this entire region that I call the Arab-Sunni region, uh, in order to make sure that the wrong messages are not sent. Otherwise, you lose control. Otherwise, you end up with a contagion that could go all the way into the Arabian Peninsula, and you could have basically 2011 redux. And that's unacceptable if you sit in Abu Dhabi. So directly after the first civil war, the UN sponsored an election in Libya, and the GNA, which is the NATO Qatari-backed government, takes power in Tripoli. Uh, the government was quite unpopular, and then in 2014, two years later, the Libyans went back to the polls, except this time they voted for the Eastern-led government. After losing the election, the GNA refused to accept the results, claiming fraud and not ceding power. And this was the major event to kick off the second Libyan civil war, which is the one we're fighting today. Uh, can you elaborate a bit more on this time? Well, the, the GNC that actually... Um I wouldn't say they won in 2012. Um, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, they, I'm talking about here about the, the Islamists and the revolutionaries, but you already had this problem of having conducted elections way too early, uh, too early compared to a war. War is what? It's a basically a game where popularity doesn't matter all that much. What matters is your access to wealth and access to weapons and you know, the quality of your organization, of how well, how well organized you are. So if you conduct, you know, if you feel that you're in a rush, which was the sentiment of everybody, it was a ter terrible mistake to conduct elections in, um, 
in July 2012, so early after the revolution, after a civil war, effectively, then you end up with this phenomenon of, of actors that are too strong, you know, in terms of uh, coercion uh, and, and, and too weak in terms of popularity. And uh, as a result, the GNC became a, a rump government. So the, only those currents started calling the shots. And those that disagreed couldn't do much. Uh, I mean, they tried, uh, but, you know, this is basically the process that lasts until, uh, you know, Prime Minister Ali Zaidan has to flee the country in March 2014. And then soon after, you have the beginning of the civil war that is, has been ongoing ever since. Um, and uh, so you you have this, again, concentration of power that uh, causes actors uh, that are not really all that popular to really want to stay. So what they end up doing is militarizing politics and imposing decisions by force. And one such moment is, the, is May 2013, the what what Libyans call uh, the uh, political isolation law, where uh, all the currents that were really brand new elites, elites that uh, emerged thanks to the revolution, and they were not much before that. They were not, you know, they were not rich, they were not powerful, they were not prestigious, they didn't have any notable function. Uh, but so they uh, they basically owed all of their new prestigious position to the revolution. What they did was basically impose a law by force, by force, I'm talking about physical force, that uh, made it impossible for anybody that had had any kind of association with the Qaddafi years, uh, had made it impossible for them to uh, aspire to a public function. So it's like they blocked a whole uh, swath of uh, Libyan society uh, and, and made it impossible for them to even hope for um, a position as a civil servant, as a director of university or anything like that. So that is basically another key moment. Anyway, the civil war that has been, that is ongoing as we speak, began in many regards uh, in mid-May 2014. And the, 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 what, the wrinkle that I would like to add is that the, you know, what happened on the 15th of May 2014 was not an act of violence instigated by the very forces that I've been referring to. The, the actor that decided to use force on that day and hasn't stopped ever since uh, is Marshal Haftar. So somebody that was effectively against the revolution. Um, and we are now talking about this very unique character in the sense that he had been very violently pro-revolution when he returned in March 2011. Uh, during the year of 2011, he was completely in favor of executing anybody that uh, resembled the Qaddafist. Uh, he was absolutely ruthless as a revolutionary. But then he had spent enough time at Saudi's own country to understand that the international dimension of a crisis is always worth betting on because that's where the money is, that's where the infinite support and infinite injection of resources is. So he kind of uh, turned quotes, if you will, uh, to, to, to a large extent. And he decided to become not a ruthless revolutionary actor, he became a ruthless counter-revolutionary actor. I think the, the opinion of Libyans on, on both sides matters less and less. 
Of course, uh, if you're a nationalist and if you're a prideful Libyan, you're never going to admit that. But let's face it, uh, the decisions are not being uh, made in, in Libya so much anymore. Um, so I don't, you know, it's half tar is what you see, but uh, uh, the actors on the ground are more and more, um, uh, in, you know, they, they, we're talking about, you know, Sudanese mercenaries, Russian mercenaries, all kinds of other mercenaries potentially that have been introduced more recently. And uh, the people who call the shots are not, are not Libyans. They're not Libyans in the West, they're not Libyans in the East. So I would say, uh, that's what I call the Haftar side, or the, the Haftar camp. But it's not Haftar, it's not the bunch of Libyans sitting in a room calling the shots. It's not the case. And we have to, we have to be realistic about that. The first Libyan civil war was over in a matter of months, because it mostly had the international community backing just the one side, the Libyan rebels. But this war is different. This war has international partners on both sides. Seven countries continuing to throw fuel onto this already burning fire. So to better understand where this war sits and whose side are they on, we turn to our next expert witness. Part two, the tug of war. It's terminal, uh, in a sense. You know, Haftar has attacked the capital. He wanted to seize it quickly. He's clearly unable to do so. Um, and so he's drawn defensive lines around the city. Uh, and he's probably now going to start heavy shelling as a means of protecting what gains he, he has. Tarek Megarisi is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, with a speciality in the Middle East and North Africa as well as its relationship with Europe and the rest of the West. And he joins us today. The forces opposed to Haftar um, have the numerical superiority, but lack the technological uh, edge that Haftar's weapons have and have previously lacked the air support that Haftar has gotten from the Emirates in Egypt. Um, so perhaps now with Turkish support, we will see them start to push Haftar back. But this is a war that's been going on for almost a year now. It's been incredibly destructive. Um, and it, it shows no signs of ending anytime soon, which is perhaps the worst point. So let's go through some of the combatants. Who are the GNA, formerly known as the GNC? Right, well, the GNA, or the Government of National Accord, was a government that was created through a year-long UN process back in 2015. It hasn't really worked out that way. It's a government that has largely struggled to take hold uh, and is limited really to just the president, Fayez al-Sarraj, who doesn't really represent anybody, uh, and his main deputy, Ahmed Maitik, who represents the city of Misrata. Um, both of the representatives from the east or who were close to Haftar have boycotted it from a long time ago. Um, I always dislike saying that people are fighting for the GNA. I mean, the GNA has been in place since 2016 and has failed to accomplish anything. Uh, in fact, there has been significant corruption and deterioration of the average quality of life whilst they've been at the wheel. Um, so even amongst the forces in this large coalition fighting Haftar, um, I don't think anybody is fighting for Siraj or for the GNA in its current form. What they're fighting for is the idea of a civilian government. 
um, of the idea of inclusive governance and against this model that Haftar represents, which is a military-style dictatorship. Um, so you have many people coming to the front who are saying, well, you know, we shed blood, we lost friends and family in 2011 to rid Libya of dictatorship. Um, and so we're going to do this again against Haftar. And you see similar um, similar MOs across the anti-Haftar lines or those who are fighting under the GNA currently whereby they might not be fighting for anyone in particular, but what they're fighting against is this idea of mob rule um, from Haftar and his cronies. And how much ground do the GNA currently occupy? You know, not much in terms of square footage. So Tripoli, up until the southern suburbs, uh, is still under GNA control, as is the kind of sliver of land that goes eastwards from the GNA until just past the city of Misrata, which is another major city in Libya, and where a lot of the fighters who are currently fighting against Haftar come from. Where is the GNA getting all its weapons and money from at this time? I mean, they their money comes from the Central Bank of Libya. It is, uh, they are the legitimate and representative, oh, sorry, an internationally recognized government of Libya. And so they are using the state's funds to prosecute this war, which they see as a defensive war. Um, where are they getting their weapons from? I mean, for, for most of the last year, they've been fighting with these kind of Soviet-era weapons that they looted from Gaddafi's arms stores back in 2011. Uh, most recently, they've signed a security partnership or a memorandum of understanding for security issues with Turkey. Um, and although Turkey has been around since the start of the war, it's only really now that they have started sending um, heavy weapons uh, as well as resupplies um, in a big way. And so now we're starting to see a significant advancement in the, in the, uh, the weaponry at the GNA's disposal, including air defense systems, uh, advanced anti-armor missiles, uh, tanks and armored vehicles of their own, artillery and so on and so forth. The GNC were heavily supported by France and Italy in the first civil war, but that seems to be changing from what I understand. So Italy, which has been the closest state to the GNA over the last few years, has not really been very supportive. Uh, in fact, they've kind of hedged their bets, worrying that Haftar may win and not wanting to ruin their relationship with him. France, on the other hand, has been clearly behind Haftar, and they have been for a long time now. I mean, there's no evidence that they're supplying him of weapons, although um, these Javelin missiles, which are these kind of advanced anti-tank American missiles that are owned by France, were found in one of Haftar's weapon stores uh, in late July, and they haven't really given a convincing answer for why they were there. So let's talk about the other side of the war now, which is the Eastern government, known as the House of Representatives, led by General Haftar. Uh, who is supporting them? Yeah, I mean, the, the House of Representatives was the last elected parliament that Libya has had. Uh, they were elected in 2014, right after a civil war had started. Um, and, you know, there are delegates or MPs in that parliament from all over the country, although there were boycotts at the time uh, from various minority groups and the, the level of voter participation was very low. I think it was somewhere between 14 and 17 percent. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it is the most recently elected parliament which has an official position under the same agreement that 
that birthed uh, the, the GNA. However, you know, as there is a civil war going on, this this body is is just as split as any other institution in Libya. So you have kind of a, a group of them who sit in the east who are loyal to Haftar uh, in a city called Tobruk, and you have another breakaway group now who are sitting in the capital, um, and they're each trying to say that the other is illegitimate given their political preferences. Um, and then you have many more who have just gone back home because they haven't seen the parliament do anything of value since it was elected in 2015. Would you call Haftar a Gaddafi loyalist or someone who's trying to emulate that same revolution Gaddafi was part of? So he was there in 1969 with Gaddafi when he launched his coup to take control of the country. And he was high up in Gaddafi's military um, for a long time. However, I think it would be a stretch to call him a Gaddafi loyalist. Uh, to cut a very long story short, after he lost in Chad and was picked up by the French and then the Americans, he he kind of disowned Gaddafi just as much as Gaddafi had disowned him. Uh, and there was a significant degree of acrimony between the two. You know, Haftar nominally joined the opposition movement to him in the United States. Uh, and even today, Haftar tries to gain some legitimacy by, by bringing in ex-regime figureheads. And many of those who were hardcore Gaddafi loyalists, including members of Gaddafi's family, uh, still greatly resent Haftar um, and still greatly dislike him. Uh, but in many ways, yeah, Haftar sees himself as Gaddafi. And, you know, there are some who can suggest that even this project is his way of trying to, uh, to take the story to, to Gaddafi whenever he passes on to say, well, you might have had your revolution, you might have kicked me out of your gang, but at the end of the day, uh, it was me who controlled Libya and it was my sons who will carry on the, um, the dynasty, as it were. So who is supplying Haftar then? Who is providing him with the money and ammunition here? Yeah, I mean, it's he gets a lot of support from a range of states. I mean, if we start from the top, uh, his project was uh, came to eastern Libya through Cairo. Uh, the Egyptians played a, a leading role in the early days in helping him to piece together what he now calls the Libyan Arab Armed Forces uh, with kind of ex-intelligence officers, ex-military officials and some tribal components. Uh, they really helped to build his movement and to arm it in the early days. Since then, it's been largely picked up by the United Arab Emirates and they are his main backers. Uh, not only have they built an airbase near to his headquarters in eastern Libya, uh, they run um, you know, air campaigns in Libya, both with drones and with fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, they fly in weapons of all varieties uh, to him. And they have helped to, to broker other support for him, um, from kind of Sudanese mercenaries to the involvement of countries like Russia. Uh, you know, Russia has been using tangible support for Haftar to improve their relationship with Egypt and the UAE since, um, you know, 2016, where they started printing a parallel currency for him to use in eastern Libya. Um, you know, to fast track to the present day, last uh, September, you saw Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group, um, a group that's very close to, to President Putin, who are fighting on Haftar's behalf at the front lines. So a few weeks ago, we saw a round of peace talks in Moscow and then another one in Berlin, but neither of these seem to have achieved very much. 
Uh, both sides have broken their arms embargoes almost immediately. Uh, with peace talks breaking down, do you think we'll see an escalation in the war? Um, well, you know, in the last few weeks, there have been a huge amounts of weapons shipped in. Um, you know, because the, the Turks have now gotten more involved and set up air defense systems, uh, the UAE can no longer use their drones to stop GNA forces mobilizing. Um, so what we're likely to see is that the huge amount of artillery that has been shipped to Haftar over the last few weeks is about to be put into, is about to be put to work. Um, and we're going to see a lot of indiscriminate shelling of Tripoli to kind of spread this terror and try to hurt the morale of Tripolitanians, um, but also to try to stop GNA forces mobilizing in a way that could push back Haftar. At the same time, the GNA forces are now eager to kind of um, to show Haftar that he, that he can no longer win, that now that they have some kind of tech, technological parity, um, to teach him a lesson, as they say, and, and to use Erdogan's own words. And so we might see some offensives coming up. But, you know, the, the level of weaponry in the country has escalated hugely. Um, the acrimony or the bad faith on all sides is there to a greater extent than ever before. And so when the fighting does resume, it's going to be under the zero-sum mindset, this idea that we have to create facts on the ground, so we have to win. Um, and they will be supported to do so until the end by their foreign backers, or so it seems. And what do you think the most likely outcome for the next six months of fighting will be? You know, it, it pains me to say it, but I, I think an escalation in war is the most likely outcome for the next six months. Um, I think once this truce finally formally collapses, then both sides will throw everything they've got at one another. We'll see huge amounts of devastation. Um, I can see the Haftar forces being pushed back from around Tripoli and instead concentrating on the Eastern Front. Um, and GNA forces then trying to reclaim oil fields and getting hurt quite badly from the skies. Uh, there will be a increasing pressure on all parties, but mainly Turkey, um, from Europeans uh, as they look for a way to maintain influence and to maintain relevance on the Libyan issue and also try to, to de-escalate the conflict in their own way. Um, but if it's going to continue as has been currently laid out with the ideas of naval blockades and peacekeeping forces and so on, I think this might just exacerbate the situation to an even greater degree. Um, I think if more Turkish support comes in, the Emiratis will find a way to match it. We'll see more mercenaries coming into the country. I mean, you've already got rumors that Russians are now sourcing Syrian mercenaries to fight against those um, that Turkey has bought. So we could be in a ridiculous situation whereby Syrians are fighting Syrians in Libya. Um, and yeah, you end up with a conflict that's spinning out of all control. On one side, we have the GNA, with Turkey and the UN and some Italian help. On the other side, we have Haftar and the House of Representatives, supported by Russia, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, France, Greece and Egypt. Everyone can sense the tensions are ramping up, and the final decisions will be made soon. But what do all these unlikely allies want? And why do they care about this particular patch of Africa? And also, why is the USA seeming to stay away from this one? 
Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 3. Slicing up the pie. Well, we're now 10 months into a uh, war of attrition, which is how General Haftar likes to do his uh, battles. He holds cities under siege. Benghazi was three years. Uh, Derner was uh, a number of months um, in the Far East. And so he's now prepared to try and do the same thing with, with Libya. Jonathan Weiner was the special envoy to Libya for the U.S. State Department and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the United States. He was in charge of the U.S. policy towards Libya and has met and had high-level talks with everyone from Haftar to Putin. He has averted massacres in Iraq and he is one of the most senior members of Obama's foreign strategy team. It is hard to overstate the impact Jonathan has had on U.S. foreign policy, in particular with this war with Libya. We are so thrilled to have him on the program, and he joins us today. And beat them in, uh, with Tripoli, and to beat Tripoli into submission. And that's where it is. And the reason it is going to go even more slowly than Benghazi is because of the role of Turkey. So first, let's go through a few of these countries and get a better idea of why Libya matters so much. And let's start with Egypt. Egypt gave a lot of weapons and money to Haftar in the early days of this civil war. What were they hoping to gain from a Haftar victory? Well, for starters, Libya and Egypt have a very large border. Libya is the major country to Egypt's west. And uh, if you think about it, uh, Egypt really doesn't want terrorists coming across the border from Libya. So Egypt's big fear, and there's two of them that are related, is that terrorist groups, which include from their perspective the Muslim Brotherhood, which they extirpated uh, from power in Egypt through a coup, uh, could uh, establish themselves in Libya, control Libya's oil, and then fund domestic Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or domestic terrorists in Egypt to undermine the Egyptian government or to carry out terrorist activities against the Egyptian people, or both. And those are big concerns by Egypt. And that's been driving Egypt's policy. Egypt does not want to have a Muslim Brotherhood government in Libya, and it doesn't want to have a terrorist government in Libya. And it wants to protect its border. And the reason why it picked General Haftar, he kind of picked them and they kind of picked uh, um, him, is because he said, I'm anti-terrorist. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm happy to be an authoritarian leader, a general like you, General Sisi, who's now President El Sisi, and um, to put in place in Libya a government similar to the government in Egypt, which has a heavy military component. And I'll impose order, I'll get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, I'll get rid of the terrorists, and everything will be great, and you'll get um, Egyptian workers back in Libya again, which will help your economy. And you'll get contracts, which will further help with your economy. You'll get stability. And from Egypt's point of view, what's not to like? It's much safer um, than a democracy, which is inherently iffy and dangerous. So what about the UAE? They've been supplying a lot of planes and drones. And what are they hoping to gain from this conflict? The UAE is a family-based dynasty. As, uh, just like the Saudis are a family-based dynasty, like the Qataris are a family-based di dynasty, uh, like Jordan has a family-based dynasty, dynasty, and like Morocco has a family-based dynasty. And from the point of view of the Emirates, family-based dynasties are um, secure and stable. 
um, and they can work with one another and cut deals. And if they have a falling out, as they did with Qatar, um, they can isolate and put pressure on them, but um, they're not um, as dangerous um, as uh, countries run by political parties, uh, as was true with the Baths in Syria and the Baths in Iraq and the Muslim Brotherhood when it controlled Egypt. Uh, and they're certainly not as, uh, as, as dangerous as Islamist-based parties, which is how they saw the Brotherhood and certainly how they see Iran. So if you look at all of those as the options, family-based rule, religious-based rule, political party-based rule, they have a strong preference for the family-based rule. And then uh, the dictator is the other, uh, uh, is the other option. And if, an, uh, if you have a friendly dictator who you can work with and who depends on you in part, uh, that's okay um, too. Now in Egypt, you could say al-Sisi's not a dictator at this point, democratically elected, and that's true. But he came up on the military side and he was installed in part uh, with Emirati money. That was a success. And so having help, helped get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which they uh, would worry about as the potential alternative to family-based rule in the Gulf. And then the last, of course, and I left this one out intentionally to last, is um, they've seen what happens with democracies, and democracies sometimes wind up picking uh, a political party like the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, their view is once that happens, that party will never give out control. And it will be uh, uh, pernicious and dangerous if it controls lots of oil revenue. So that makes them very nervous. They've not seen multi-party democracies with compromise do tremendously well um, in the Middle East. And I think they're skeptical about it. So they'd rather have somebody who uh, owes them uh, substantially and whose behavior they think they can shape. So what about Russia, who is providing lots of mercenaries, weapons, and a lot of money? Why are they involved in this? Well, Russia has long wanted a warm water port. That's been a part of Russian um, diplomatic goals for hundreds of years. Uh, having one in the Mediterranean, outpost the Mediterranean, has been their goal uh, throughout the period of the communist period and the post-communist period some as well. What Russia has been able to do with its support of Haftar, and that support has been enormous, and it's not just weapons, and we'll go back to that in a moment, is they've, got the, they've made themselves into power players. They've strengthened their relationship with Egypt and with the Emiratis and with the Saudis by doing this. Um, they potentially are going to be able to get oil out of it, uh, access to Libyan oil which they can make uh, money off of. They can sell weapons uh, to Libya in exchange for oil barter. That's what they've done in Venezuela, uh, support for the regime, and in return, um, they get to buy the regime's oil uh, when it's sanctioned by everybody else. Uh, and it, they also weaken the United States, weaken European influence uh, at the same time. So it has many, many benefits, regardless of whether they ultimately establish a port there or not. Um, military benefits, political uh, benefits, diplomatic um, uh, benefits, um, all, all put together. Very nice. Now, in addition to the military stuff, what they did early, and this has had one of the biggest impacts in bringing Libya into the civil war it has today, is they gave Haftar billions of dinars, 12 billion, 13 billion dinars, 
printed by the Russian state printer Gosnak, uh, starting in um, April, May 2016. Now, if you gave you, we gave you billions of Libyan dinars, or gave them to me, even though you and I don't have any um, uh, tremendous uh, personal relationships in Libya to draw upon, we could buy a lot of people with that. So they gave Haftar a guaranteed patronage network of people who were getting money from him. I'll give you 500,000 dinars, will you do this for me? Oh yes, uh, uh, General Haftar, glad to. And so that sustained support, and they've done billions more in 2020, we just don't know how much yet, in addition to the original 13 billion, in what's essentially a counterfeit currency has let him build a patronage network, which in turn let him continue his siege of Benghazi till he took the city, his siege of Dern until he took the city, and now his siege of Tripoli. Give somebody unlimited amounts of money, uh, there's an awful lot they can do. So what about Italy, who's currently providing some assistance to both sides? First of all, Italy has a long history with Libya. They um, were the uh, colonial imperial power in more recent decades. Italian uh, oil companies, um, E&I in particular, uh, have uh, been amongst the largest purchasers of Libyan oil. Uh, Italy doesn't produce a lot of oil itself, it has to buy it. So Libya has been a major oil supplier for Libya, for Italy. Italy wants to have continued access to that oil um, for, for forever, and it's important to Italy, therefore, for historic reasons uh, and for economic reasons. So what about France, who was one of the first to switch sides over to Haftar? What are they hoping for in this? Well, I think the idea, um, in terms of the support of Haftar initially, was that Haftar was going to be a counter-terrorism ally and was going to control military forces that could help France in the French Sahel. Uh, historically, France was the imperial power in uh, French West Africa which includes countries that have serious terrorist threats, uh, like Mali, uh, like Mali uh, and uh, Niger and Chad. And uh, France would um, want uh, wants help in dealing with those threats. And Haftar has promised such help. Um, and uh, France is very interested in that because it's interested in the south of Libya. So going against all of these guys is the GNA with Turkey. Uh, why is Turkey pushing so hard in this one? Well, first, uh, like Italy, uh, Turkey is a colonial power. All of Libya was part of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, that was administered in part from the city of Misrata, and there are lots of Turkish Libyans, people who are, uh, whose families uh, resulted from intermarriage by Turks during the Ottoman days um, with uh, the various tribes um, uh, along the coastal region in Libya. And so there's been Turkish trade and Turkish influence going back many hundreds of years. And there's also lots of Turkish commercial contracts with Libya, and Turkey does not want to lose those. And there's great power rivalry between Turkey and Egypt, and Turkey does not really want Egypt to win and Turkey to lose. And uh, those are among the elements uh, there. There's an ideological element, too, which should not be forgotten. You could characterize Erdogan's political party as Islamist, 
or as Muslim Brotherhood. Of course, it's a Turkish version of those things. Uh, I see it really as being uh, trying to reclaim the power and status Turkey had under the Ottoman Empire. And the first uh, Turkish government to want to move beyond influence within Turkish uh, territory to exert influence um, in neighboring states in a substantial way. And so there's great power politics there as well and ideological elements. The Turks do not want to see people who are like them, the Libyan form of a Muslim Brotherhood or Islamist, uh, being put down by family-based uh, powers uh, and, um, uh, and people installed by family-based powers. So that's how they look at it. The big notable absence in this group is the United States. So why is the U.S. staying out of this one this time? Well, Mr. Trump got elected in substantial part through hysteria and distortions whipped up over the loss of four Americans in a terrorist raid on our consulate in Benghazi. Uh, I was buying a car for my son at one point in the 2016 election period and asked the guy selling me the car, so who are you going to vote for? Oh, I don't know. Of course he would say that. I said, well, there's a debate tonight. What issues would you like to ask the candidates? And he thought for a minute, he said, Benghazi. Well, it's crazy. A guy who's in the business selling cars, why would he care about Benghazi? He cared about it because it became a cause celebre in the United States, because it was a convenient way to beat Hillary Clinton by the Trump campaign. And uh, Donald Trump, having done that, the last thing he would ever want is to have anything about Libya go wrong and to have it blamed him blamed for it, to recapitulate Benghazi. And I think he does not want to be enmeshed in Libya. And the only time he got involved in Libya uh, over the last three years was when he took a call from Khalifa Haftar, where he was asked to take that call by uh, Mohammed, um, pardon me, by President el-Sisi of Egypt, who asked him to take that call, and then uh, Mohammed bin um, Zayed, the crown prince of um, the Emirates, in turn asked him to make that public. And that was for the political purpose of trying to do what Haftar told me he had always wanted to do, which essentially is create a stampede um, where everyone agreed he was the dictator and that was that. And Haftar's whole vision is to uh, take Libya by a mixture of conquest and popular acclamation, because that's what Gaddafi did. So you've met Haftar on a number of occasions. What is he like as a person? Cautious in what he says initially, um, bo somewhat, um, bo somewhat boastful, very clear on what his goals are. He does um, mix statements that aren't true like I'm going to be able to take Tripoli or Benghazi in two or three weeks, which he's re repeated many, many times. Uh, propaganda with clear statements about his intention. He told me he was not willing to subordinate himself to any Libyan politician. Libyan politicians are worthless. Um, the country wasn't ready for democracy. He would bring security to the country, uh, force everyone with a beard, meaning an Islamist, um, out of the country by having them either in exile, in prison, or in the graveyards. And he then said to me, and I think we all could agree that the graveyards would be best. 
And I said, no, I don't think we all can agree that, agree on that. But he made clear that if you were a political opponent of his and an Islamist, prison, exile, or death were going to be your three options. So right now, Haftar's forces are already attacking the outer southern suburbs of Tripoli. But does he have the forces to be able to take and hold the capital? Well, did the United States have the uh, arms to take Japan at the end of World War II? They did, but it was going to be bloody and intractable. And so instead, the United States uh, dropped nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, after which Japan surrendered. So the question here is, is Haftar going to get enough air support from foreign countries like the Emiratis to bomb Tripoli at the level that uh, causes everybody to give up? We do not know the extent of uh, just how far the bombing campaign is going to go. What I do believe, based on my um, knowledge of Libyans and the the uprising, revolution, is that uh, if he takes Tripoli, he will not be able to subdue it. That the guerrilla war would go on for a very, very long time. Could he take it? Maybe with enough destruction. Can he hold it? I don't think so. and it will destroy the city. It will destroy the where um, some half, perhaps, of Libyans live. The numbers are squishy, but some awful millions of Libyans live in, in Tripoli, and the bulk of the country lives in the area around Tripoli. Um, can he take and hold out? I don't think so. I think it's catastrophic, and that's been demonstrated by the fact that the war's gone on for 10 months so far, with Turkey providing Syrian fighters on the other side and weapons to fight back, it seems extraordinarily unlikely that he's going to be able to take it. What he wants and needs is not to take Tripoli. What he wants and needs is the ability to take control of the oil, export the oil, um, and get control of the central bank and uh, the uh, Libya's inheritance uh, from Gaddafi, which still amounts to at least many tens of billions of dollars and may amount to more. That money is frozen. So he needs to find a way to uh, get at those funds. For this air campaign, who is providing the planes? They seem to be Chinese drones um, under the control of the Emiratis. That's what I've been told. Um, How much is coming in addition uh, from Russia? How much is coming um, from Egypt? How much is being bought from Sudan? Uh, I can't tell. It all needs to stop. And the Turks need to stop bringing in Syrian fighters. That's going to lead nowhere good. But you can't expect uh, the government of national accord um, in Tripoli to um, unilaterally disarm. And you can't expect the Turks to stop uh, until the other side stops. So where do you see this going? What do you see happening in the next year or so of the war? Uh, There are four things that can happen, fundamentally, as I see it. One, Haftar can take uh, Tripoli as a result of a massive air campaign. Um, I don't think this can happen, but let's presume it. Um, And then has to hold it, and you have terrorism and guerrilla war for the foreseeable future, a very unstable situation. Massive human rights violations, massive refugee flows, um, and extraordinary corruption. Contracts going to Russia. Um, and Egypt, Turkey, very unhappy, Algeria, very unhappy. 
And I think it, it's a, it, it would not be at Haftar at age 70, whatever he is, five, six, um, um, uh, potentially not being around for too many years. And if he is not in great health, uh, corruption involving his sons, and, and it goes on from there. So that's one scenario. Scenario two is the country splits. There's a partition. Uh, the East finds a way of grabbing uh, the oil that Haftar now controls and selling it in violation of current international contracts. People recognize that government, some of foreign countries, so we, you then have renegotiate the co past contracts, you avoid the old contracts. Of course, you then have litigation internationally, which is a problem for that. But the East um, se separates from the West. The pipelines cross from East-West. Most of the terminals are in the East. So I think you then have continued fighting over who controls the oil, and you and that's a mess too. Um, that would be a situation where more oil leaves from the east and more of the population from the west. I don't think it's stable. Third scenario, there is a political settlement as a result of the patron states realizing that options one and two are really not good, and in that and um, uh, they find ways of. Um, pulling back, stopping the fighting, and punishing anyone who tries to keep fighting. So you would have to be prepared to take action against Haftar one kind or another in order for that scenario to work, at least no longer give him the option of fighting, because Haftar will fight until he wins. He will never quit. It doesn't matter how many years it goes on, he will continue. Um, he'll, and he'll never reach a political agreement. I've watched Macron be diminished. Um, by his efforts to elevate Haftar. I've watched Conti, the Italian prime minister, be diminished by the same um, role. I've watched Haftar uh, humiliate Vladimir Putin in Moscow by refusing to honor Putin's peace, peacemaking efforts and to leave early. Um, I've seen him humiliate Germany and every other country that has treated him with any um, diplomatic respect. He, he has one vision. And that is that he's going to be dictator. He played nicely under Gaddafi. He wound up in a chatty in jail, got rescued by the United States, played nicely with the United States. The United States abandoned him. He was ignored when he came back to Tripoli. This is his effort to correct 50 years of history and to prove it should have been him from the beginning. And he's never going to abandon that. So three is a political uh, agreement of some kind. Um, which means no, um, which ends the dreams of conquest, and four is uh, continued civil war, deterioration of the country, humanitarian crisis, growing pockets of terrorism, lawlessness, criminality, militias controlling things long term, um, great power conflict between Turkey uh, and Egypt, and maybe Russia in there, and potentially having the disorder spread. I think it is also a disaster. So if the war does drag on and the country continues to deteriorate and will become a breeding ground for terrorism, uh, do you think it will have an impact on Europe with Libya being so close to the Italian coast? Yes, sure. All kinds of people. It's a disaster for Europe. It creates, humanitarian, it creates migrant flows due to humanitarian crisis. Most of the migrants will be simply trying to find a safe life. Some of the migrants uh, will be uh, engaged in terrorism. Um, that's been the pattern. It's not very many, um, but you're at great, at great risk. 
And with Russia in control of the Libyan coast, it would control the flow of migration between Libya and Europe. Do you think they might use this to stoke nationalism in Europe and uh, further weaken the EU? Yeah, that's right. It's all good for Russia if, if you're utterly cynical. And I think Mr. Putin is utterly cynical. Um, and it's very bad for the Mediterranean uh, countries of Europe. A lot of this seems to revolve around Haftar himself. So if he were to die or to be taken out by a drone strike or something, uh, would that de-escalate the war? It's a great question. There's lots of anger within Haftar's forces about his dominance, um, his um, n not sharing. He's not a good sharer. He controls everything. And um, people don't like that. Um, they did not like being having Gaddafi control all resources, reward his, fav his favorites, and provide um, gifts to everybody else um, on the basis, I, I give it to you, I can take it away. Um, so there's a lot of dissent in Haftar's camp. Would somebody else emerge to be Haftar? I, I don't know. It's not clear to me who it would be. It's certainly not his sons. So um, a lot of this gets worked through. Um, if he goes. And lastly, do you think the US should get involved in this war? Um, what should the US do? Um, uh, the US does need to take a leadership role. All of this would not be happening if the United States had continued to take a leadership role. We have the ability to tell Gulf states across the board, cut it out or we will take steps that will not be in your interest in other areas. This is important to us, stop it. It needs to stop. There needs to be a political settlement. We can do the same um, with Turkey. With Russia, I suppose we could expand sanctions further. It's hard to know what else the United States can do in relationship to Russia. But that Russia's uh, interests uh, begin not to work so well if the Emiratis and Egyptians and Saudis um, want them to stop. Um, so there's an opportunity there for U.S. diplomacy, but the U.S. would have to be much more engaged than it's been at any time under the Trump administration. Libya has no good solutions on the table. If the GNA win, we will see a destabilized country that will have to rule over a spread out populace with a lot of guns, a lot of money, and a lot of grievances. And these problems will quickly spread through North Africa and into the Sahel region. If this conflict is not contained, we will likely see large-scale fighting in three to nine African nations within a few years, all whilst training and radicalizing fighters for future conflicts all around the globe. If Haftar wins, we will see yet another Libyan dictator return to power, one that will be ruling over the burnt rubble and destruction it would take to recapture Tripoli. The difference is we will be dealing with a man who owes his allegiance to the Russians and the Emiratis, and that would definitely not be in our interest. Russia was one of the main adjutants of the refugee flow into Europe last time. And once again, I'm not against refugees at all. But what it did last time was give credence and power to far-right parties all across the continent parties that often seek to destroy the European project. With Russia's hand on the tap and a base to sell its oil, guns and influence into North Africa, who knows where that region will go?
all I know is it likely won't be in Europe's or the Americans' best interest. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in for this episode. It was amazing to work with some of the best experts in the field. If you want to support the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at The Redline Pod, or myself on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz. Or you can visit our website, www.theredlinepodcast.com. A big thank you to all of our donations on Patreon. Every dollar you give will go directly into improving the show and hiring more people to build it up. A huge thank you goes out to all the guests for this episode. You can follow Jalel and his great work on Twitter at jmjalel underscore h or read his work on the Klingendale Institute website. You can follow Tarek on Twitter at tmegarisi where he posts a lot of the most up-to-date information on Libya around and his work with the European Council has been exemplary as well. We can't thank Jonathan enough for coming on the program. It is always amazing getting the viewpoints from the people who actually made the decisions. You can find some of his great think pieces on the website, the Middle East Institute. Once again, a big thank you goes out to Mark Spencer for the additional vocals on this episode. He's become a very good friend of the show, and I recommend you check out his podcast, Climactic. In any case, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll be back in a fortnight with another international piece. But for now, thank you, and good night.